Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We're delighted to have Dr. Ross with us today. He'll be introduced to us by Dr. Richard Comey. Dr. Comey is a professor of medicine and the section chief of endocrinology, and Dr. Ross has no conflicts of interest to declare. Come tell us about Dr. Ross. Thanks, Rich. Well, good morning and uh, welcome. It's really nice to see a nice turnout. So we're very fortunate today to have Doug Ross, who's a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and also at the Mass General Hospital, to come and talk to us today about a really interesting topic, thyroid nodules. Thyroid nodules are an interesting topic for endocrinologists, but actually for general medicine, particularly, I think, for primary care doctors. So I think you'll find this pretty interesting. Um, Doug actually graduated from MIT and then went to Harvard Medical School. From there, he did his internship and residency at the Mass General and was taken on the staff there. He, he uh, worked his way up to being a full professor, which many of you know is no easy thing to do at Harvard by 2011. Um, and he has been the co-director for the Thyroid Associates Group there uh, since. He actually is extremely influential in uh, endocrinology. He's been on numerous boards, which I'm not going to bore you with all of them, but he has a, a real uh, voice on many, many of the guiding uh, panels and also on many of the guideline committees. He is, has a real interest in thyroid cancer and is part of a national uh, treatment group that coordinate their data. He also has a research study going on now in micropapillary thyroid cancer, some of which he'll talk about, I'm sure, uh, today. He recently chaired the Hyperthyroidism Guideline Committee for the American Thyroid Association. And if that's not enough, he actually has been the editor of the thyroid section of Up to Date. So most of you have read his work at one time or another. So we're really pleased to have a very influential voice in American endocrinology. Thanks. Thanks very much, Rich. So um, I'm going to be talking about thyroid nodules, which um, represents um, a bit of an epidemic. Um, and um, in discussing this epidemic, I'm starting off with a very old slide. So um, this slide suggests that patients with um, nodular goiter um, represent 5% of the population of the United States, or about 10 to 15 million people. Um, but this is an old slide. And as you all know, we are now doing ultrasounds um, in our patients, and 49 to 72% of the female population have thyroid nodules if you put an ultrasound transducer on their neck. So we're talking about 160 to 200 million people with thyroid nodules um, in the United States. Um, and um, this has resulted in an epidemic in thyroid cancer um, looking for all of these nodules. Um, so here's the SEER data, um, and this is from um, 2013. Um, in 2013, there were estimated of 60,220 cases a year. Um, this is now closer to 70,000 cases a year of thyroid cancer. The deaths from thyroid cancer are only about 1850 a year, and this includes um, the anaplastics and the more aggressive ones. And the estimated prevalence is a little bit more than half a million people um, in the United States. Um, and this shows the increasing um, incidence of thyroid cancer in the United States. But you'll notice the percentage of patients dying from thyroid cancer um, really hasn't changed um, at all. And looking at the figures numerically, between 1975 and 2009, you see this threefold increased incidence of um, thyroid cancer, but really no change at all um, in the mortality figures um, from this disease. So fortunately, um, the trend um, shows that the um, increased incidence is beginning to level off. So the data I showed you just now ended in 2009, where the annual increase in thyroid cancer was about 7% per year. But this has now dropped off a little bit. Um, so maybe we finally are making a dent in the number of nodules we're picking up, or maybe people are finally beginning to listen to the guidelines um, that suggests that we don't um, look for um, cancer um, as vigorously as we have in the past. So this is the menu of topics that I'm going to discuss in the next um, 45 minutes. We're going to talk about evaluation of the thyroid nodule with thyroid scans, ultrasounds, and observation. We're going to talk about the Bethesda cytopathology um, classification, um, the use of molecular gene expression, and if I have time, some provocative stuff on, on thyroid hormone suppressive therapy.
So obviously, when you need a thyroid nodule, um, your major concern is whether that nodule represents a thyroid cancer or not. And there are all sorts of figures about what the prevalence is of cancer in thyroid nodules, um, but I like these two studies. Um, one of these is from a um, community hospital in North Carolina where a surgeon in a small community took out every thyroid nodule he met over the course of his career. And 6.5% of them were cancers. The other is a population-based study from Catania, Italy, based on fine needle aspirations. Um, and in that study, um, the incidence of thyroid cancer was about um, 5%. It's important to realize um, that cancers are more likely in nodules in men than women. Um, and there's an age distribution that's important as well. So if you're younger, you have a higher risk of malignancy if you have a thyroid nodule. But the large group of young and middle-aged women really only have a 3 to 4% risk of um, cancer in a thyroid nodule. And unfortunately, it's the elderly patients with all the comorbidities and other problems which have the highest um, rate of malignancy um, in thyroid nodules. So there's this question as to whether nodules in a multi-nodule goiter are less likely to be cancers. Um, there are some conflicting data on this slide. Um, first of all, starting with this study, which comes from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, um, clearly this is a selected population because they report almost a 15% risk of malignancy um, in um, nodules that are single. Um, in patients with multiple nodules, the risk of malignancy within a single nodule in a multi nodular goiter was in fact lower, but the risk of malignancy in the patient um, was about the same um, because of the multiple nodules. Um, in contrast, in the UK, um, Franklin has shown um, a risk of malignancy in um, solitary nodules of 5.9%, a little bit closer to the figures I just showed you, um, and 1.4% in nodules within a multinodular goiter. And the um, study from Catania, Italy, showed no major difference between the risk of malignancy in solitary nodules or nodules in a multinodular goiter. So there was a period of time when we were just biopsying the dominant nodule in a nodular goiter, um, but then people started biopsying virtually everything, and this has contributed to this epidemic of thyroid cancer, um, and we've begun to um, regress from this mantra that we should um, biopsy everything that we see. The only risk for um, cancer in a thyroid nodule is a history of childhood head or neck irradiation, um, which we aren't doing as much as we used to. This was for tonsils, adenoids, acne, um, and enlarged um, thymus. About a third of um, those patients um, have um, malignant thyroid nodules, and the use of alkylating agents um, in those with head and neck tumors that were irradiated um, apparently increases the risk. So how do we start off when we manage a patient um, with a thyroid nodule? Um, and this is the flow diagram from up to date. Um, and so um, if we pick up a nodule clinically or incidentally, and virtually all of them are being picked up incidentally nowadays, the most common um, chief complaint for someone walking into the front door of our thyroid unit is, I had a chest CT. Um, and um, so the, we start off with a TSH and a thyroid ultrasound. If that TSH is normal or elevated, then this is a non-functional nodule, and then you should consider doing a biopsy based on the sinographic and clinical criteria that we'll be discussing um, shortly. But if the TSH is subnormal, this may be an autonomous nodule, and autonomous nodules are very unlikely to be cancers, and so you need to do um, a thyroid scan. If it's a non-functional nodule, consider biopsy. If it's a functional nodule, then you may still need treatment for either subclinical or overt hyperthyroidism, um, but you don't need to stick um, a needle um, in that nodule. And so I'm going to start off with thyroid scans because I think they've recently been highly neglected by both the endocrine community and the internal medicine community. People have sort of forgotten that they have a utility in the workup of thyroid nodules. Um, there are two types of scans, technetium scans, which measure trapping at 20 minutes, and the I-123 scans, which are typically used to measure organification at 24 hours. And it's the I-123 scans um, that are preferred because a hot nodule in an I-123 scan is almost never a malignancy. However, the 
these are ex more expensive um, and generally require 24-hour imaging. There are some centers that do 8-hour imaging. I'm not sure if that's really more convenient for the patient than 24-hour imaging or not. Um, technetium is widely available in nuclear medicine units. Um, you can get an image 20 minutes after you do the injection. Um, however, 3 to 8 percent of thyroid cancers will trap technetium but not organify iodine. So here's where you get um, the false negative results from doing um, thyroid scans. This is Excuse me, this is an I-123 scan. Um, the suprasternal notch is marked, a four centimeter ruler is marked, um, and here we've used a cobalt pen to circle on the patient's skin um, a palpable thyroid nodule. So this is clearly a cold nodule. If this patient had had a low TSH, this might be a patient with coexistent Graves' disease in a nodule, um, or just an area of autonomy that's not in that nodule. And here is a hot or autonomous or toxic nodule. Um, here you can see the circle and circles this large nodule on the left side of the patient's neck. You have suppression of uptake in the contralateral lobe, so you know this patient has a low TSH. This is not a nodule um, that you need to stick a needle in. Well, what is this? Some people like to call the term, use the term warm nodule. There's no such thing as a warm nodule. A nodule is either going to be functional or non-functional. Um, and one of the tricks that you can do in select patients, and this was an MGH nurse who did not want me to stick a needle in her neck. She had a TSH of 0.7, um, and I was pretty sure that this was going to be a cold nodule. Um, but I put this patient on thyroid hormone. She was a young patient, and made her a little bit hyperthyroid. I suppressed the TSH to under 0.5, and this is an autonomous nodule. Um, and so you can do suppression scans um, in younger patients um, to try and determine whether a nodule is functional or non-functional. And this may be useful in patients with follicular neoplasm cytology, which we're going to be discussing um, shortly. All right, so let's move on to ultrasounds. So ultrasounds is what you all think of when you hear the term thyroid. Um, but it's important to look um, at these data from 1999. In 1999, um, a survey of members of the American Thyroid Association asked how many of them would even order an ultrasound in a patient with a thyroid nodule. And that was only one-third of the physicians that would even order an ultrasound. That was a decade and a half ago. Nowadays, we all have ultrasound machines in our exam rooms, and if you simply walk by our front door, you get dragged in and we do an ultrasound of your neck. So which nodules need to be biopsied? Um, and um, while ultrasound has caused the problem, um, we're using ultrasound to try and um, alleviate some of the problem at this point. Um, initially, there, there was this 10 millimeter cutoff for doing biopsies. Um, and that came from this sort of data, um, and this is old data, that showed that very small nodules had pretty high non-diagnostic rates. Although I think most of us would do a lot better than this um, now that we've had so much experience sticking needles into patients' necks. So the Papini study was really the first study that suggested ultrasound would be a useful way um, to minimize the amount of biopsies that we are doing. So he found that he could pick up 87% of the cancers by biopsying less than a third of the nodules by using these ultrasound criteria. The nodule needed to be hypoechoic and solid and in addition, either have microcalcifications, central blood flow, um, or irregular borders. Um, and here is a hypoechoic nodule, a nodule on ultrasound that is darker than the surrounding normal thyroid tissue. Most nodules are hypoechoic, um, but um, most cancers are also hypoechoic. Um, and this is a nodule that shows microcalcifications. This is a papillary cancer. This ultrasound is highly suspicious um, for a papillary thyroid cancer. The question of blood flow um, has been put aside by the current um, American Thyroid Association recommendations. What happened when Papini suggested that blood flow was useful is that the manufacturers of all the ultrasound machines revved up their blood flow, and so most nodules have a little bit of central blood flow. But this shows peripheral blood flow, which occurs as the nodule grows. It pushes the vessels aside. That's not a suspicious characteristic, but in the Papini study, central blood flow um, was considered considered a suspicious characteristic. 
And finally, since publication of Papini's study, um, Capelli has come up with the fact that nodules that are deeper than they are wide are more suspicious. And in this study, that had the most sensitivity and specificity um, for being um, a malignancy. And here's a nodule that has, it's deeper than it is wide. And why that should be a risk factor is not clear. One of the issues may simply be pressing on the thyroid with the transducer. A soft nodule is going to flatten out and be wider than it's deep. But there are other arguments about fascial planes that I don't quite understand as to why this should be um, a suspicious characteristic. In Capelli's hands, um, he only needed to biopsy 16% of the nodules to pick up 84% um, of the cancers by adding that criteria. One of the scans that frequently picks up incidental nodules are PET scans. Um, so if you have a nodule that um, concentrates PET, um, then the risk of malignancy is as high as 40%. But you have to be careful because Hashimoto's thyroiditis is also um, PET positive. Um, this study simply shows, however, that ultrasound is really um, more sensitive. So if you have a suspicious ultrasound in a PET positive nodule, the risk of malignancy is 76%. But if the ultrasound, if it looks like a benign nodule, and ultrasound, the risk of malignancy um, drops to 13%. So these are the current um, recently published American Thyroid Association guidelines for what nodules um, need to be biopsied. And they incorporate a lot of the data um, that I just recently reviewed with you. So um, a solid nodule that's hypoechoic with any of the suspicious features I showed you has a risk of malignancy of around 70%. And these should be biopsied if they're greater than 10 millimeters. But if there's no suspicious features, the risk of malignancy falls considerably. But they still recommend biopsying these nodules if they're greater than 10 millimeters. But if the nodule is isoechoic, similar to the surrounding thyroid tissue, or hyperechoic, brighter, um, and if there's no suspicious features, the risk of malignancy is low, um, and they recommend increasing to 15 millimeters. And finally, if the nodule is spongiform or complex, cystic, and solid, the risk of malignancy is under 3%. And the suggestion is, is that those nodules don't need to be biopsied unless they're greater than 20 millimeters, or perhaps not at all. So spongiform means it looks like a sponge and cross-section, and um, the dark areas are, are areas of fluid, frequently colloid, um, within the nodule. So the cutoff was 10 millimeters in the ATA guidelines. So the question that I'd like to next ask is, do we need to diagnose papillary cancers that are under um, 10 millimeters? Um, and we certainly are doing that. Um, so if you look at surgical pathology specimens um, at Queen Elizabeth Hospital in the 1960s, only 5% of the thyroid cancers were under 10 millimeters. By 2000, 22% were um, under 10 millimeters. And then if you look at these studies from 2006 and 2008, University of Wisconsin, University of Ferrara in Italy, were up to 42 to 40 and now in Montreal at Jewish General Hospital, 50% of the surgical pathology represent thyroid cancers that are under um, 10 millimeters. So 13% um, of you in this room have a thyroid cancer in your thyroid gland. Um, in the autopsy studies in the United States, it's ranged from 5.7 to 13 percent. But in some parts of Europe, it's been reported as high as 36 percent. Um, in a study from Sweden, it seemed to be independent of age. In young men who died in the Korean War, um, wrong sex, wrong age, and they still had about a 3% risk um, of having um, thyroid um, cancer. So what does um, this mean if we sort of take the SEER data um, and this prevalence of thyroid nodules and thyroid cancer? So the US population now is a little bit over 300 million. If I take the lower range um, of the risk of incidental um, cancers in population of 6%, that means there should be 18 million people in the United States that are walking around with thyroid cancer. But I showed you the prevalence is just a little more than half a million. So we have only picked up less than 3% of the cancers that are out there. This is clearly a growth industry for endocrinologists if you have an ultrasound machine and a needle if you want to pick up um, all of these cancers. Um, so 
it's very interesting to look at um, this observational trial by Dr. Ito from Japan. Um, and this is one of several trials from Japan, and Mike Tuttle has set one up at Sloan Memorial Kettering um, in New York. So um, Dr. Ito now has um, 1,235 patients um, who are enrolled in this trial. They um, had biopsy-proven papillary cancers under 10 millimeters, and they agreed to be observed. And, um, and over the course of um, 10 years or longer, the number of these tumors that actually grew was only 8%. So most of them just sat there and watched. Some of these patients, 3.8%, developed cervical lymph nodes. Thyroid cancer is unusual among the adenocarcinomas. The presence of cervical lymph nodes in some of the staging systems doesn't even change the stage. The Mayo Clinic staging system doesn't even include it. Um, in the TNM system that we commonly use, it doesn't change stage if you're under age 45. Um, so lymph nodes are, are not a big deal. Um, and so um, of the patients of the 1,200 and 35, um, 191 patients have come to surgery, only 16%. Some of them went to surgery just because they were tired of being observed or a friend told them they really should get it out. Um, but 120 of those patients um, had surgery because of progression or because of lymph nodes. And of those patients, um, only one has had a recurrence in the contralateral lobe. And that recurrence, like many recurrences, is being observed. Um, and this just looks at the patients who refused to be observed versus those who had surgery um, after something happened. And it shows that the number of nodal metastases, multifocality, and distant metastases um, was similar. So clearly, these papillary microcarcinomas um, are not a major um, problem for the majority of patients. And so really, observation should be the standard of care for non-palpable thyroid nodules um, under 10 millimeters. And if we stop sticking needles in these small nodules and stop doing surgery and having surgical complications and giving these patients radioactive iodine, we can make a major dent um, in this epidemic. All right, so then switching to how we evaluate um, larger thyroid nodules. Um, clearly, um, thyroid aspiration biopsy has become the major tool. Um, and there's um, several different ways to stick a needle in a patient's neck. Um, most people use fine needle aspirations. Um, fine needle capillary sampling refers to just using um, either a, a naked needle or a needle with no aspiration pressure. Um, it's frequently done in combination of FNAs. Um, and then core needle biopsies were um, abandoned for a while, but they're making a comeback, and I'll show you one slide on that. So here's a patient I'm having a fine needle aspiration biopsy. Um, this is a simple office procedure. About half of the patients that are scheduled to see me for thyroid nodules don't even realize that they're getting a needle biopsy um, that day. Um, this is an old slide um, because you can see that um, the nodule here is, is between the examiner's two fingers. There's a 25 or 27 gauge needle. He's using um, a holder that allows you to aspirate with one hand, although I use a free hand technique, as many people do. Um, the difference between this slide and what you would currently do is there would probably be an ultrasound transducer um, in the left hand, um, and we usually put on gloves. <laughs> So this is the Bethesda classification for um, thyroid nodules. And this classification changed dramatically eight years ago because they added these two categories, follicular lesion of undetermined significance and atypia of undetermined significance. And that's caused an enormous problem um, for endocrinologists um, and for patients. So this is when fine needle aspiration helps. When you have a benign reading, or you have a reading that's suspicious for malignancy or malignant. This is going to be followed, and those patients are going to go to surgery. And I'm just going to quickly show you a few histology and cytology slides. So a macrofollicular lesion um, has abundant colloid with large follicles, uniform follicular size, um, size, and only rare clusters. So these are these follicles that are filled with colloid. This is histology. <clears throat> and with Excuse me. When you do um, a fine needle aspirate, um, this is um, low power, and you can see some um, intact 
um, follicles, intact macrofollicles, and a macrofollicle that's been broken apart, um, which um, is these flat sheets that you see in a macrofollicular lesion. And at high power, um, the cells are fairly uniform, and you can imagine the margin of a macrofollicle there. So Hashimoto's thyroiditis is the other benign finding that you um, might biopsy. And this is um, characteristic for lymphocytes that look a little bit torn, because when you do the smears, um, they tend to tear easily. And there's a lot of um, oxyphil cell or Herthley cell change. And this is the high power of Hashimoto's showing the Herthley cell change and showing these lymphocytes that are a little bit um, torn. Papillary thyroid cancer has a very distinct cytopathologic look, um, and so that's why you can use these biopsies to diagnose papillary cancer. Um, and here at um, the prior slide just showed you um, papilla formation, and here at high power, you can see these cytoplasmic intranuclear inclusions and grooves across the nuclei, as well as the ground glass appearance. And so papillary cancer really is um, an easy cytologic um, diagnosis. But this is the problem. More and more of the biopsies are being read in these so-called indeterminate categories, follicular lesion of undetermined significance or atypia of undetermined significance or follicular neoplasms, which represent microfollicles instead of macrofollicles. Um, and these microfollicular lesions are small follicles or just sheets of follicular cells with scant colloid. Um, here is histology of a microfollicular lesion, um, and you can make out some microfollicles. And at high power, um, in contrast to the macrofollicular slide I showed you, you can make out a few microfollicles, but there's a lot of clustering and clumping and um, pleomorphism um, within the nuclei. If the follicular cells undergo oxyphil cell change, they're called Herthley cells. Um, Herthley cells, Herthley cell cancers are more significant because they tend to be more aggressive, and this is the cytology of a um, Herthley cell neoplasm. So follicular neoplasms, um, microfollicular lesions, which are indeterminate on cytology, can represent benign lesions. They can represent autonomous nodules, which brings us back to the scans that I talked about um, at the beginning. Most of them nowadays are follicular variant of papillary cancer, or they can be um, follicular cancer of the thyroid. And the reason these are indeterminate is you can spend all day looking at a microfollicular lesion, but you can't tell whether or not it's benign or malignant based upon the nuclear features. Follicular cancer is defined as a microfollicular lesion that's invaded the capsule or the blood vessels. And in order to see that, you need to take the tumor out 99% um, of the time. So there's no such thing as follicular carcinoma in situ, although of course there has to be, um, but we don't call the lesion cancer um, if we haven't documented um, invasiveness. So what Bethesda did was said, well, there are these lesions that have some microfollicles and some macrofollicles, so let's call them follicular lesion of undetermined significance. And this category also um, includes poor fixation. And atypia of undetermined significance represents some of the nuclear features that I showed you, grooves and intranuclear inclusions, but not enough to be diagnostic, or um, lesions that have extensive Herthel cells, because Herthel cells make everybody um, a little bit nervous because they are more aggressive um, tumors. So these. Um, this nomenclature was intended to be no more than 7% of the biopsies that were done. Um, when they made this, this nomenclature up, they said, we aren't going to use this very much. It's just those difficult cases which we think are probably benign, but we aren't sure. But in fact, um, this is a great way for cytopathologists to cover their rear ends and avoid malpractice cases. Um, and so they are using this nomenclature all the time. And so as a result, we get indeterminate um, biopsies. Um, and so the result of this has been in this multi-centered study that included Mass General and UPenn and a number of European centers, before the use of FLUS, 9% of thyroid nodules were going to surgery. They've introduced this new nomenclature, and now 37% of patients are going to surgery. It's really hard when the term atypical appears in the pathology report um, for a patient to explain to a patient why they might not need to have that nodule um, taken out. 
The other problem is, is that cytopathologists have very little agreement as to what represents a FLUS or an AUS lesion. So in this study, samples were reviewed at John Hopkins from outside centers, and they reinterpreted 32 percent um, of the samples, and 8 percent of them resulted in a two-step change in that Bethesda um, classification that I um, just showed you. Um, and in the, um, the Affirma study, <clears throat> which I'll be talking about shortly, the concordance of the outside um, cytopathologists with their central cytopathologists was 82% for benign, 94% um, for malignant, um, but for FLUS AUS, the concordance was only 35%. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> and, um, and the funniest study is a study where a group of cytopathologists were sent some slides, asked to review them. Five years later, they were sent the same slides. There was one cytopathologist that only agreed with himself 20% of the time. <laughs> so, so we have a problem now that the cytopathologists have created, FLUS and AUS. What's the solution to this problem? So um, the, the suggested solution to this problem is the use of molecular markers for these indeterminate um, categories. Um, and so the first mutation panel that was introduced um, was, and I'll, you'll see why I'm calling it version one, was this eight-gene panel um, that was supposed to be useful for determining whether indeterminate nodules were or were not malignant. Um, but this panel missed 6% of the cancers in FLUS and AUS readings, and it missed 14% of the cancers um, in follicular neoplasms. Um, and so um, this didn't catch on um, very well. So um, the next panel that was um, invented is this gene expression classifier, which is marketed as a firma by Verisite. Um, and um, this took a different approach. Instead of looking for um, genes in malignancy, they did um, a um, looked at 167 messenger RNAs and looked for benign patterns. So they were basically having a computer um, analyze um, these genes um, and create a facial recognition um, pattern of genes that would be consistent with um, a benign nodule. And the validation study that was published in the New England Journal um, looked at 265 indeterminate nodules, which included only 85 cancers. Um, this gene expression classifier correctly um, identified 78 of the 85, and they calculated negative predictive values of 94 to 95% for FLUS AUS and follicular neoplasm. But you'll notice what the ends are here. So we're creating a percentage with a sample that has less than 100 people in it. Um, and so as a result, um, if you look at the confidence intervals for these negative predictive values, they're really quite wide. Nonetheless, this test has been widely embraced by the endocrine community and is um, widely used by the endocrine community. The NCCN cancer guidelines suggested that we should only be using molecular tests that have a negative predictive value that exceeds 95%. And when you calculate negative predictive value, it's important to um, understand that the prevalence of, in this case, cancer in your sample um, is part of the calculation. And so in order to get a negative predictive value of greater than 95%, the prevalence of cancer needs to be under 23%. In most community centers, um, it is well under 23%, because as I mentioned, the cytopathologists are using these indeterminate categories um, all of the time. Um, and many people quote a 10% risk of malignancy if you have a FLUS or AUS reading. But in the centers, in the academic centers, where the cytopathologists are not using these indeterminate categories as much, um, the actual um, risk of malignancy or prevalence of malignancy in a FLUS or an AUS reading, for example, at Johns Hopkins, is much higher than that 23%. Um, and it's argued um, that this test really doesn't add very much if you have excellent cytopathologic um, um, physicians. Um, However, this has made a major dent in the epidemic of thyroid surgery. So these, um, this study from Dan Duick shows that before they introduced the classifier, 74% of their patients with an indeterminate biopsy went to surgery. And after they introduced it, this was reduced tenfold um, to 7.6%.
Um, and Paul Ladenson has shown that this actually saves money. So Medicare actually started covering this test um, because um, it results in a cheaper overall workup of a thyroid um, nodule because less patients um, are going to surgery. The positive predictive value of the gene expression classifier in the validation study was 47%. But again, if you look at what academic medical centers report, they report it as only 16%. The gene expression classifier does not work well for Herthley cell lesions. Um, this was actually hidden in the original um, report. 17 of 21 benign nodules were benign Herthley cell lesions had suspicious um, Affirma tests, and one out of 10 cancers were missed by the Affirma. Um, in this follow-up study from Mass General, 72 Herthel cell neoplasms, 63% um, were suspicious by um, the Affirma test, but only 14% were malignant. Um, so it's not very useful in that setting. So the second major um, molecular marker that's available on the market um, is this revved up mutation panel. The original mutation panel I showed you had eight genes. Um, this one now has 13 genes and 42 gene fusions, and it's marketed as ThyroSeq version 2. Um, and there are two um, papers that Nikiforov have published, 143 patients with follicular neoplasm, a positive predictive value of 83%, and a negative predictive value of 96%. And for the FLUS AUS, 95 patients, positive predictive value of 77%, and a negative predictive value of 97%. So at first blush, many people look at this and say, well, you have the same negative predictive value as Affirma. You have a higher positive predictive value, so maybe this is a better test. Um, however, this was not a blinded study like the validation study that the um, gene expression classifier did. Um, Dr. Nikiforov knew what the genetic testing was when he interpreted his cytopathology. Um, and a very recent study that was just e-published from the University of Minnesota suggests the positive predictive values are much lower um, if you do this in blinded fashion. Um, and finally, there's a third um, panel that's on the market. I've actually never seen anybody use it. Um, but what this panel does is it combines both concepts. So it's looking at 10 messenger RNAs and the original eight oncogene <laughs> panel um, and coming up with negative and positive predictive values that are similar um, to the two other tests that I've um, mentioned. So even if you don't read the endocrine literature, if you read the New York Times, you may know about this issue of redefining non-invasive follicular variant papillary cancer. Um, certainly, my patients um, read the New York Times since I had about 120 emails the day after the um, article was published. So going back a second um, to this portion of the slide that I already showed you. So we've been familiar with the concept that we need um, capsular invasion or vascular invasion to define a follicular thyroid cancer in a microfollicular lesion. So what Nikiforov and others have decided is that these encapsulated follicular variant papillary cancers have such an excellent prognosis that we should stop calling them cancers. And so um, they suggested the same thing, that these only be called cancers um, if they've invaded the capsule. But the difference here is when you look at these microfollicular lesions, you have no idea whether they're malignant or not. When you look at these um, encapsulated follicular variant papillaries on a cytology specimen, they look like papillary cancer. They're going to be read as papillary cancer or suspicious um, for papillary cancer. And the counterargument is, well, yes, these are cancers. They just have an excellent prognosis. Um, but there's this movement to call them um, NIFTs, non-invasive follicular tumors, um, and not call them um, cancers um, at all. So, if you exclude the NIFTs from analysis, um, this is what happens. It's primarily in the AUS plus follicular neoplasm and suspicious for malignancy group, um, which had um, the largest group um, of these NIFTs. Um, and what happens to these molecular marker tests that we were just talking about? Um, and this literally was e-published um, a few days ago. Um, it looks at 63 cases with um, plus AUS or follicular neoplasm with suspicious um, gene expression classifier. 
asking what percent of them are these nifty lesions. So 25% of them were follicular variant, eight were follicular cancer, and 2% papillary cancer. Most of them um, are benign. Um, but if you look at the cancers, 64% of the cancers that are being picked up by the gene expression classifier are these non-invasive follicular um, tumors um, that it is proposed we stop calling um, cancers. So clearly, this is going to change the landscape um, and how we utilize these tests um, if, in fact, this terminology catches on. But it's important to realize that this doesn't avoid surgery, because you still need to do surgery to find out whether or not there's invasion of the capsule. Um, what this new nomenclature is going to do is going to prevent patients from having to go back and have completion thyroidectomies and hopefully get people to stop giving radioactive iodine to these really low-risk um, tumors. So um, I mentioned that I was going to um, talk about core needle biopsies. There's been a little bit of resurgence. They seem to be very useful in patients who have had a couple non-diagnostic um, fine needle aspirations. Um, so um, with non-diagnostic fine needle aspirations, about um, 86 to 87 percent of the time, you can get a diagnostic biopsy using a core needle. Um, most endocrinologists can't do core needles because you need surgical malpractice insurance, at least in Massachusetts, um, in order to stick a core needle into a patient's neck. Um, you don't want to take a core out of the carotid or the esophagus. Um, and, um, and another issue that frequently comes up is when do you need to re-biopsy a nodule? Um, the data actually suggests that you almost never need to re-biopsy it. There are three studies which together represented 334 nodules that were cancers. Only two of those 300, um, um, only two of the 334 nodules with benign biopsies that grew by more than 50% turned out to be cancer. Um, and um, despite that, um, the recommendations, as you'll see, um, recommend um, that benign nodules be reassessed in six to 18 months. These are the ATA recommendations. And if there's growth of greater than 20% in two to three dimensions, you should consider, they don't say you have to, but you should consider um, doing a repeat biopsy. So just to summarize um, some of the recommendations, um, so clearly if you have suspicious or malignant cytology, um, you should do a thyroidectomy. <coughs> However, what are the recommendations for follicular neoplasm or for lesions that are flus? Well, for follicular neoplasm um, and flus, if you have a low normal or low TSH, if you haven't already done that thyroid scan, you might want to consider going back um, and doing a thyroid scan. Um, for follicular neoplasms, most people are routinely doing molecular testing now. Um, but for the flus lesions, these are lesions which just have a small portion of microfollicles um, and are generally um, those lesions that most of them were previously called benign. Sometimes just repeating the biopsy or having someone else look at it um, might um, give you a benign reading and might save you the cost of doing molecular testing. The molecular testing runs about three or $4,000. Um, and um, then there's also clinical judgment that needs to be added here. If you have a 19-year-old with a four-centimeter follicular neoplasm, that should just come out. Um, you don't want to be following a four-centimeter follicular neoplasm for the next um, several decades um, in a patient. Um, if the um, biopsy shows AUS because of nuclear atypia or AUS because of Herthel cells, um, you may want to do molecular testing. Um, if your concern is papillary cancer, the molecular testing um, may be very helpful, especially if it's positive. Um, and again, that caveat that the gene expression classifier is not useful um, for Herthley cell lesions. There's actually no data that's been specifically published on whether thyroseq version 2 um, is useful um, for Herthel cell neoplasms um, or not. And again, you need to use clinical judgment on surgery in a suspicious nodule, um, whether or not um, it um, has a suspicious cytology reading.
So I actually do have um, time to go over the last portion of this talk. Um, and this is um, a little bit of a provocation. I don't want you to get the idea that I'm recommending or re-recommending suppressive therapy um, for thyroid nodules. Um, but as many of you with gray hair in the audience know, um, there was a period of time where everybody um, with a thyroid nodule, with a goiter, with a history of um, any surgery on their thyroid was put on suppressive therapy, um, which was supposed to um, shrink nodules and prevent nodules um, from growing. Um, Garib published a paper from um, the Mayo Clinic in the early 1990s that suggested that nodules didn't actually shrink with suppressive therapy. Um, and um, in fact, a meta-analysis subsequently suggested that only 17% of nodules shrank more than 50% on levothyroxine. But even in that meta-analysis, they suggested that 10% of nodules stopped growing if the patients um, were on suppressive therapy. Um, Papini, again, did one of the better studies. Most of the studies were short six-month studies. He did a five-year randomized control trial of suppressive therapy versus non-suppressive therapy. And I think this illustrates um, very nicely what suppressive therapy accomplishes. So in the control group, the nodules grew over this five-year period. Um, well, in the treatment group, um, the nodules basically stopped growing. Um, but this was a very interesting finding, and this has been confirmed in other studies. In the patients taking thyroid hormone, only 8% of them developed a new nodule over that five-year period. But in the patients who weren't on suppressive therapy, 29% of them developed um, a new nodule. So one could ask is whether part of this epidemic of nodules um, is related to the fact that we've abandoned suppressive therapy, which was so routine for a period of about um, three or four um, decades um, in the United States. Um, and actually, um, you can actually show that the epidemic in thyroid cancer may be partly related to abandoning suppressive therapy as well. This is not a randomized trial, but these are um, thyroid centers in Italy. And some of those centers totally abandoned suppressive therapy, and some of those centers continued using suppressive therapy. Um, and they weren't geographically clustered. They were sort of scattered all over Italy. And the risk of um, cancer was lower um, in the centers that continued to use suppressive therapy um, versus those um, that didn't. We know that TSH is a predictor of malignancy. Um, if you um, look at the TSH level um, in thyroid nodules, the higher the TSH, the more likely it is that that thyroid nodule um, represents um, a cancer. We also know that TSH at presentation is correlated with a stage of thyroid cancer. Um, so um, suppressing TSH um, may actually have utility in this field, although the American Thyroid Association guidelines have um, shown us or told us that we should not be using suppressive therapy for thyroid nodules um, because of the risks of suppressive therapy. It causes subclinical hyperthyroidism. I talked about that yesterday afternoon in endocrine rounds, um, an increased risk of atrial fibrillation, reduced bone density. And so suppressive therapy is not recommended by the American Thyroid Association. Um, but one of the interesting questions that's been asked is, does suppressive therapy mean that the TSH actually has to be subnormal? Um, and there's finally a study that looks at this. Um, it's not a terribly good study, um, but it's, um, I think, provocative. Um, and they called this um, non-suppressive levothyroxine therapy. Um, they basically um, put patients on a dose of thyroid hormone that lowered the TSH within the normal range. And when they did this, um, by four years, you could show statistically significant differences um, in the growth of nodules. So I think more data needs to be generated on this issue, um, but perhaps um, we'll be going back to the future and using thyroid hormone um, to help um, with this epidemic of nodules and thyroid cancer in the future. So I'll end there and happy to answer any questions. did a great job of going through a huge amount of information and still leaving time for questions. For some questions from anybody? What's up with Italy? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, what's up with Italy? Well, they, they seem to be generating a lot of data. So there's a very active um, thyroid research group in Italy. There has been for a long period of time, and um, a lot of the data comes out of Italy. Mm -hmm.
Is Italy representative, representative, do you think, of, of Not necessarily. So there's certainly all of Western Europe, um, Italy and Germany specifically, um, have had long periods of time of iodine deficiency. Um, so you have more nodular goiter in those parts of the world um, and more follicular cancer as opposed to papillary cancer. So there are significant um, differences, although those are becoming less and less common as, as they've introduced iodine into their food supply. If the guidelines were followed and we were evidence-based, how great an impact would that have on the apparent epidemic? Well, as I suggested to you, about 50% of the surgery is being done for, um, for cancers that are under 10 millimeters. So it would have a major impact if people stopped sticking needles in these small nodules. Um, it's, I find it very curious. I, I give talks on papillary microcarcinoma, go through the data, um, and then present a case. And the case I present is an um, 8 millimeter thyroid nodule with microcalcifications. Um, I show the ultrasound and I ask how many people in the audience would do a biopsy of this, and 80% of the audience raises their hand after, after I go through all of this data. So um, it's, it's a hard call. Um, part of the issue is one of the endocrine societies, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists as opposed to the American Thyroid Association, um, their guidelines are still more, more aggressive um, with respect to thyroid nodules um, and um, suggest that suspicious nodules should be biopsied and they don't really set a, a 10 millimeter limit for it. No questions? Um, yeah, I mean, I do give these talks to surgeons. I mean, our surgeons are really busy. They do about 1,200 thyroidectomies a year, and, um, and they um, seem perfectly happy with the concept of following, um, following these small cancers. So, but, um, but again, there are hungry surgeons who um, want to biopsy or um, remove just about anything. Um, you know, there are lots of patients that I see for second opinions who have these totally benign looking nodules with benign biopsies who have gotten recommendations for surgery from their surgeon. So Doug, there's a question. One of the things that um, this brings up is we create this population of people who uh, the recommendations are to get ultrasounds periodically and the sentence stops there. It doesn't say periodically for 10 years. It just says periodically. So what do you guys do with, with patients who have nodules that you've decided to sort of follow? Yeah, so there's, there's no data on this, but there's becoming some data on this. So there are two studies with, with similar results suggesting that nodules that are going to grow usually take about four years before you appreciate the fact that they're going to grow. And the authors of those studies suggested that, that a four-year interval would be appropriate for following following up on a thyroid nodule. Um, you know, I've seen enough um, cancers that were missed grow quickly that my practice is to um, see patients at six months or 12 months first time. But after that, I'm having them come back at three-year intervals in my practice, but I'm just making that up. There's really no data. No questions here. Uh, you mentioned that the ATA is not recommending the suppression uh, therapy. For, the, for your nodules? Not, not recommending it, yes. Right. Yeah. Because we ate your fibrillation and osteoporosis. How did they determine that there was increased osteoporosis in the actual patient? Oh, so, so there's a huge literature on the adverse effects of subclinical hyperthyroidism, um, and there are um, large studies not only showing reduced bone density, but also showing increased hip fracture risk um, in patients with low TSHs. Yeah, Doug, how, how do you reconcile all this diagnostic confusion with the fact that death rates from thyroid cancer have remained absolutely flat? So, the death rates from thyroid cancer, it's 1,800 um, people a year. About half of those are papillary, so you're really talking about 900 a year. The other are these undifferentiated thyroid cancers and anaplastic cancers um, that are killing people. So um, there, there clearly are people that get metastatic disease from papillary cancer and ultimately die from it, um, but the death rates are, are just very low, and the overwhelming majority of people that are diagnosed with papillary cancer, um, about 85% are in the um, MASIS category, um, the lowest MASIS category, 
Mesis is the staging system that the Mayo Clinic uses, um, and about 86% are stage 1, 2 in the TNM system. Um, so so we're, not, we're not picking up um, necessarily more of the aggressive cancers. They would have been picked up before we had ultrasound machines. Um, so we're, we're picking up, you would think you'd make a little dent in the death rate because you would have thought that we would have been picking up some of the more aggressive tumors earlier, um, but that may be a combination of both factors in both directions. Um, but most of these are just indolent tumors that, that aren't causing people to die, as long as they're not neglected. There's a question in the back. So are there observational studies in countries that have uh, undeveloped healthcare systems looking at mortality rates? You know, the question being, does all this innovation, all this intervention really make a difference? And the natural history of this disease is such that it definitely would still be quite low. Um, you know, we've been doing these interventions for so long, and all these studies reflect that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know of any data that addresses that. The only observational trials that have been um, published are uh, from Japan. Um, certainly, um, I've seen um, more than a handful of patients who have refused treatment for their papillary thyroid cancer. And um, over 20 to 30 years, they eventually um, develop invasion into their trachea and esophagus and have tracheostomies and, um, and uh, chest tu um, uh, stomach tubes as a result. Um, so clearly, if, if you neglect these tumors, they, they are cancers. They will eventually cause significant morbidity. There's a question over here. Sure. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels with prostate cancer in terms of overdiagnosis um, and uh, related to the last couple of comments. Has there been any thought of an active surveillance approach similar to use in prostate cancer? Um, so as you know, people are basically suggesting um, surveillance of the tumors that are under 10 millimeters. Um, there is a paper that Mike Tuttle wrote that um, presents a specific series of guidelines for which tumors, which nodules are safe to, um, to observe. Um, so the specifics of that um, is that um, if the nodule has suspicious characteristics and it's up against the trachea, or up um, or posterior, where the recurrent laryngeal nerve is, perhaps you shouldn't be observing that tumor. But anything else, even if it looks like a papillary cancer or an ultrasound, um, is safe to observe. Um, and the criteria are basically those that um, Ito used in his observational trials, that if the tumor um, grows to more than 10 millimeters, grows more than 3 millimeters in a year, um, or the patient develops any adenopathy that's detectable on ultrasound, then the patient should go to surgery. So um, there's been a codified list of suggestions, um, but they're all based on the study that I showed you. Could you uh, comment on uh, the uh, short and long-term <clears throat> consequences of uh, such natural experiments as Chernobyl disaster and the so the Chernobyl um, disaster resulted in a marked increase in papillary thyroid cancer in children. Um, it has not been associated with an increase in thyroid cancer in adults. Whether there's going to be some long-term issues is unclear, um, but it sort of um, parallels what we saw um, when kids were getting um, um, radiation for enlarged thymuses. Um, there was a, a spike in papillary thyroid cancer. That cohort has not had other more serious cancers later on in life. Um, the spike sort of lasted for about 20 to 25 years and then, and then appears to, to drop off. Um, for um, women who get radiation exposure to their neck because they're being irradiated for breast cancer, there doesn't appear to be any risk. There's only one paper I know about, about mantle irradiation in Hodgkin's where there was a slight increased risk in thyroid cancer. So it appears to be the fact that, that growing tissue is much more susceptible to um, radiation damage. One last question. Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, can you comment on the genetic predisposition for thyroid cancer? 
your clothes or like on, on the genetic disposition, like predisposition, location to have history, family history. Okay, so the family history thing. Um, so um, as you know, medullary cancer is familial, um, and um, there are clearly families that, that have lots of papillary cancer in it. Um, there are some people whose careers have been looking for a gene that is associated with this, and um, so far um, there are two families that had one gene that was reported um, um, by, by one investigator, but nothing that really has been um, strongly associated. So people have used this, this nomenclature that um, familial papillary cancer means you have two first-degree relatives. Um, and so maybe um, if you have two first-degree relatives, you should start screening. Um, the problem is, is that, that with one family member, many patients will go to their doctor, and their doctor will then order an ultrasound. Um, and so um, it's unclear whether we're just picking up a lot of incidental um, microcancers or whether um, these are truly family that have significant um, um, cancers. Well, great. Well, thanks so much, Doug, for the free talk. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, they did. Thanks. That was just great. Oh.